Currently, we are, for those of you who are our guests this morning, we normally preach um, sermon series from books in the Bible. And so we'll, we'll go through a whole book. And we just finished one. About two weeks ago, we finished the book of James, and we spent five months in the book of James. And uh, we're about to start a new one, uh, and Al will be starting that series soon. Uh, we're going to be starting in the book of Nehemiah, okay? So we're going back to the Old Testament. That's a, that's a great thing. But I was asked to preach, I was asked to preach on Luke 19, 1 through 10. And this is the story of Zacchaeus. And if you guys remember, uh, maybe from uh, being in church or the years you've been in church, or even from children's ministry, if you grew up in the church, Zacchaeus was a wee little man. (laughs) A wee little man was he. And uh, it occurred to me this week as I was preparing for this message. And I was wondering, is there conspiracy going on? Is there a reason why Corey and Al chose this text for me to preach? Maybe we should have had Jason preach it last week. But it is actually a wonderful story. It is a great story. And so before we actually get into the story, I want to um, give you guys an illustration that's going to help us, and it's going to drive the text for us. It's going to drive the reason why this story is here in Luke 19. There's an illustration, and there, in this illustration, there's a question, and this question is going to drive this whole text. And it's a story. And so when you come to a, a, a biblical narrative, what we do is we read the narrative and we go through the story. And at the end of the story, there is a main point. There is a main reason why this story is here in Luke 19. And for that, let me, let me give you the illustration. The illustration is actually in Luke 18. Just you turn your page. And there we see the story of the rich young ruler. And this story is, 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 is very simple. I mean, we all pretty, we've, some of us have heard this story. Uh, Jesus is, is passing by, and, and this rich young ruler comes up to him and says, Good teacher, how do I obtain eternal life? And this is a wealthy man, young man, probably a good-looking guy, probably a tall guy. <clears throat> and... Uh, And so, very successful, and he comes to the Lord, and he says that. And then, the Lord tells him, well, you know, you know what the law is, right? You know what what to do. And he says, well, I've done it. I've kept it. I've done it all. And, uh, and And then Jesus says, you lack one thing. Sell all your possessions and give to the poor. And all of a sudden, this young man just saddened by the news of what Jesus was asking of him. He just left. And Jesus was sad. And Jesus looks at his disciples and he says to them, I tell you that it is harder, it's hard for 
how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And then he says, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And all of a sudden, his disciples are like, wow, what do you mean? This guy? What, what are you saying, Jesus? And they ask the question, then who can be saved? And so that's the question that's going to drive our text this morning. Who can be saved? You see, what the disciples were really asking is, if, if this young, tall, successful man who has come looking for you and has kept the law can't be saved, then who can? Can a camel really go through the eye of a needle? Who can be saved? And my friends, many times we find ourselves in unbelief, asking the very similar question. You see, we look around at our family members, and we look at our, around at our friends that are lost, and we ask, Lord, how can they be saved? And so we live our lives in unbelief. We live our lives discouraged, many times either literally discouraged or practically believing that they can't be saved. What's the use of me talking to them about the gospel if they're lost and they can't be saved? Well, this morning, we come to this text and in the very next chapter, in chapter 19, we are going to see this wonderful story and we will receive the answer of this question. Who can be saved? But not only will we get an answer, we're going to get an illustration from Jesus. And so let's read this wonderful narrative. And I'm going to read it quickly for you guys. It says, Luke 19.1. He entered Jericho, speaking of Jesus, and was passing through. And there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small of stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him. For he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone into the inn to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today, salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And so we are going to go through this story and the first thing that Luke shows us is we're going to go through scenes, like if we were watching a movie. In the first scene, we are going to be introduced to the lost sinner, Zacchaeus. Let's meet the sinner. Look at verse 1. He entered Jericho and was passing through, speaking of Jesus. And there was a man named Zacchaeus. Stop right there. So 
what we see is we see that into this little paradise, as it was called, the city of Jericho, enters Jesus with this, this massive accumulating crowd. And he comes into this crossroad city, a city that's 15 miles northeast of Jerusalem. A city that is strategically located as a great trade center. And such a city would have many, many tax collectors. And so we are introduced to one. And well, here he is. The man's name was Zacchaeus. Now it's interesting that his name is Zacchaeus because, you see, Zacchaeus has a meaning. The name Zacchaeus has a meaning. And, and we can see from the meaning of his name that his mom and his dad had good intentions. They wanted good things for their son. All we have to do is look at his name. His name means, are you ready for this? It means clean. It means innocent. It means pure and righteous. Nice try. I guess things didn't really go the way their, his parents intended them to go. And this man defiled the intent of his parents and he becomes unclean, guilty, impure, and unrighteous. And so now the story identifies Zacchaeus not just as a tax collector, but he is identified as a chief tax collector. In other words, he owns his own tax franchise. Now, have you ever been presented a pyramid scheme? One where the guy on top of the pyramid is the guy making all the money. That's exactly what Zacchaeus was. He was the rich guy on top of this tax pyramid. But in order for you to have such a pyramid, to have such a position, a position you had to buy it from Rome. And so for, for, from the very outset of your position, you were a traitor. To the, you were a traitor to your people. Because you had to buy from Rome who were the oppressors of the people of Israel. So Zacchaeus was a traitor. Zacchaeus was a hired hand by the oppressors of his own people. He had openly renounced his heritage. He had opening, open, openly renounced his people. He had openly renounced his God for selfish wealth and for selfish gain. And you see, the way the taxation system worked in those days was somewhat different than doing your online TurboTax on April 15 at 11.45 p.m. It's, it's a little bit different. You see, in those days, Rome would set up a certain amount that tax collectors had to collect. And then whatever else they collected besides that, they were able to keep for themselves. And so it would go something like this. Imagine you owe the IRS $1,000. And Zacchaeus shows up at your house, and he knocks on your door. Bam, 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 bam. And he says to you, Jose, you now owe $1,500 in taxes. And if you don't pay now, I'm taking your animals, your possessions, even your daughter as a slave for payment. You see, this was a corruptive system. It was one that allowed men like Zacchaeus to be abusive in their taxing. They would collect illegitimate taxes to the point of becoming rich. That's what the text tells us, that he was rich. 
And these men were known for corruption, dishonesty, crime. They were known for separating people from their money illegitimately by the use of physical force and cruelty. Zacchaeus was morally lost. He was a sinner. That's what we see. He was morally lost. But Zacchaeus was not just morally lost, he was also intellectually lost in regards to Jesus. And you see, you look at verse 3, it says, and he was seeking to see who Jesus was. Let's stop right there. You see, apparently Zacchaeus had heard something about Jesus. Maybe he had heard about how great miracles he was performing. Maybe he had heard how great teaching he gave. Perhaps he was aware of the blind man that Jesus had just healed coming into the city, right outside the city. Perhaps, maybe he even knew about Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. But what we see here is a man who was completely ignorant about who Jesus was. That's what we see. And what probably happened is, as he's walking through the streets, he hears the word from the crowd that Jesus was coming into town in this pilgrimage group, and not knowing who this Jesus fellow is, he wants to see who he is. All of a sudden, his heart is struck with what seems to be curiosity, and he is doing all he can to get a glimpse of this man called Jesus. He has no idea who Jesus is. He is intellectually lost concerning Jesus. Do you know anyone like this? And Zacchaeus was also a well-known individual. But even though he was well-known, we can imagine that the reason why he was well-known was because of his terrible reputation. He was well-known because he became rich at the expense of the extortion of the people. But we don't have to go far with our imagination because the text tells us in verse 7 what the crowd thought about Zacchaeus. They say this, He has gone into be the guest of a man, speaking of Jesus, and then they speak of Zacchaeus, who is a sinner. That's what the crowd thought of Zacchaeus. Who is a sinner? And you see, this category is not simply a commentary on his personal life or simply a commentary on his character. But what the crowd is doing for us is they're giving us a statement of the category in which this man belongs. He is in the category of those that you don't go near. Because you, if you go near, you become defiled, just like him. He is in the category of the despised by all, the unwanted. He is outside the pale of social contact. He is in the category of the outcasts who are not allowed to come into the synagogue. And no one can come near him without themselves being defiled. You see, church, he, you know who he is? He is the family member we stopped talking to years ago. The one we avoid in family get-togethers. He is the loud next-door neighbor who's always drinking and screaming at his kids and whom we avoid in our way in and out of the house. He is the boy, crazy, teenage girl we don't want our daughter to talk to. 
He is the kind of person we prefer not to come into our church because he and his girlfriend are living together and they do drugs and they are just ungodly. That's who Zacchaeus is. My friends, if there was any man in the city of Jericho who was lost, it was Zacchaeus. But I think that this is the very purpose of this wonderful story to present us the worst of sinners. A man who is, who is completely lost. You see, friends, the story starts with Zacchaeus, but it doesn't end there. Luke wants us to know that there is good news for the lost. And he does this by presenting to us not just the lost sinner, but also the seeking Savior. And so, let's meet our seeking Savior. Now, so far in this story, we have, intru- we have been introduced to the sinner, Zacchaeus. But as we come to verse 3, we encounter a very interesting situation. We are told that this lost sinner who has turned his back on his people, who has turned his back on his God, this traitor, this outcast who is despised by everyone, a man whose hands were filled with the very money he had taken at the expense of the poor people, a man with tremendous guilt is interested in Jesus. I mean, verse 3 tells us that he was seeking to see who Jesus was. Now, you would think that such a man, a man like this one, would want nothing to do with Jesus. Yet instead of running and hiding, he desperately wanted to see Jesus. The verb we read as seeking in our Bibles is in the Greek perfect tense. And and the meaning is that there's a continual effort to try to see Jesus. And so we get this picture of this wee little man trying to get through this crowd just to get a glimpse of Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm a wee little man myself. And so I know what this is like. You see, I remember one year, a long time ago, I went to Calle Ocho. And if you guys don't know what Calle Ocho is, let me tell you a little bit about it. It's the world's largest block party. And it's held every year sometime in March at the heart of Miami. And this is a crowded place. There is lots of food, lots of uh, famous Latin artists performing in different stages. And, and, and as, as much as I enjoy food, and as much as I enjoy being around my people, it was not a pleasant experience for me. You see, I have the same problem Zacchaeus had in this story. My height makes it really hard for me to enjoy being among the crowd. It's like walking inside this very tight room by walls with, with walls of people. And it makes it practically impossible for me to enjoy seeing the performers. And this is the very problem Zacchaeus was facing. Because as Luke was described, has described for us, he is a man small of stature. And we get this picture of this, this massive crowd and this wee little man bouncing up and down, bobbing back and forth, trying to get a glimpse of this massive pilgrimage flowing between two crowds on either side of, of, the, of the dusty road and wanting to see Jesus, but not being able to do so. 
He can't see past them. He can't see through them. He can't, he can't look up. I mean, he, he just cannot see Jesus because he's too short. But he's determined to see Jesus. And so he sets aside all sense of embarrassment. I mean, come on. It, it, this is obvious, guys. He, he, he was going to get mocked for climbing on that tree. I mean, just imagine. Just imagine me submitting myself to climbing on a tree in front of the man of this church because I'm trying to see something. I mean, it would be worse than my snowflake story. The mockery that would, that would just come upon me would be tremendous. But the mockery that I would submit myself to would be nothing compared to the mockery that Zacchaeus was about to receive. And even though the story doesn't tell us about that, these tax collectors would, would probably keep to themselves. They would not expose themselves to large crowds very often because they didn't want to take the abuse that came to them because of who they were. But he sets all aside. He ceases to be self-protective. He ceases to be self-conscious and as he normally is. And he comes and he runs and he ceases to be this low-profile kind of existence. And he determines that he's going to see Jesus. So what does he do? Look at verse 4. It says, So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. He runs, guys. He runs to get ahead of the crowd. He climbs up into sycamore tree in order to see Jesus who was about to pass. You see, he knew the route through the street up the hill to Jerusalem. He knew exactly the path that Jesus would go. So he ran ahead of where Jesus was, ahead of the crowd, and got beyond the crowd. And he found this sycamore tree, which is a low tree, big trunks, big branches, low to the ground. The kind of tree that I would be able to climb. Okay, and so Zacchaeus was able to get up above the crowd up in the tree and perch himself in those branches. And he sits there waiting for Jesus to pass by. Now, I said at the beginning of this point that this was an interesting situation, because why would a man like this be interested in seeing Jesus? Is he curious? Sure, he's curious. But is it more than that? Well, I think that we're about to find out. And you see, Zacchaeus knew that he wanted to see Jesus. He knew that. But what Zacchaeus didn't know was that Jesus wanted to see him. And so let's meet our seeking Savior. Verse 5, and when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. You see, this story turns from the interesting to the unthinkable. This verse tells us that Jesus stopped right underneath the sycamore tree. Zacchaeus assumed that he was just going to get a view of Jesus. That's all he wanted. All he wanted was to be able to see who he was. But he, he, he had no idea that Jesus was going to stop. 
mean, just get a glance of this. There's crowds, they're screaming, they're shouting, they're pressing on. Everybody's just wild. They're pressing on to try to get a glimpse of Jesus. Everybody wants to be around Jesus. And all of a sudden, in front of the eyes of thousands of people, Jesus just stops underneath this tree. And he looks up and he says, Zacchaeus. Hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. And the first thing that Luke presents to us concerning this seeking Savior is that he is personal. He is a personal Savior. My friends, Jesus looked at him and called him Zacchaeus. You see, it doesn't, doesn't that blow your mind? I mean, it doesn't blow our minds to understand that Zacchaeus wanted to see Jesus. I mean, everybody did, right? But what Luke is highlighting for us is that Jesus wanted to see Zacchaeus, and not only did he want to see him, but even though Zacchaeus didn't know him, Jesus knew who he was. Jesus knew who Zacchaeus was. In fact, he knew him by name. And this is a reminder to all of us this morning that the seeking Savior knows who he's seeking. It reminds me of Nathaniel in John 1 when we were in the book of John. When Nathaniel says to Jesus, how do you know me? And Jesus says, I saw you before I ever showed up. You see, my friends, the seeking Savior knows who he is seeking. He knows his own. Zacchaeus never expected to catch the eyes of Jesus. He never ever dreamed that Jesus would know him. But the good news for this lost sinner is that he does. My friends, maybe you sit here this morning and you often wonder if God knows you. You often wonder if God is even aware of your existence. Or maybe you sit here and you think of the family members and the friends whom you sometimes wonder, does God know that they are lost? Does he care that they are lost? And the answer to these questions is yes. You see, God is not some high-in-the-sky deity who is ignorant and unaware of who you are and who those around you are. He knows you, and He knows you by name. The Creator of the universe knows your name. He knows your name. And He knows even the names of those who don't know Him. The seeking Savior is a personable Savior. But Luke also presents to us a seeking Savior who is intentional in his seeking. So look at verse 5 again. It says, and when Jesus came to the place, he looked up. Let's stop right there. You see, my friends, do you realize that Jesus didn't stumble across Zacchaeus? He came looking for him that day. You see, many preachers tend to emphasize to their audience that Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus' apparent seeking of Jesus. And so the whole sermon would be structured around three or four or five steps to salvation. Well, Zacchaeus ran. Well, Zacchaeus climbed. Well, Zacchaeus took Jesus home, etc., etc., etc. But when we really look deep at this text, what we see is a seeking Savior. Let me give you an illustration that may help us understand this better. 
An illustration that may help us understand who found who. This is a story of a man who had a hunting dog. And he loved this dog dearly. And one time while out hunting, they were separated. The dog went one way and the man went another way. And no matter how loud the master whistled, the dog would not come back. And the man had an appointment in town that morning. And he needed to leave. And so the question was, would he ever be able to see his dog again? And then he remembered a trick an old trainer had shared with him. And so he took off his coat and he took off his t-shirt and he placed it on the ground under some small bushes. And then the man left. But he returned the next day to find his dog cuddled up on on the t-shirt with his nose under the sleeve. Who found who? You see, the dog sniffed out the scent of the master and waited. But it was the master who drew him there with his t-shirt. And it was the master who returned to seek and to save the dog. And this is exactly what's happening here, my friends. This story is not about the initiative of the sinner, but about the initiative of the Savior. Zacchaeus didn't even know who Jesus was. But Jesus knew him. While Zacchaeus climbed a tree just to catch a glimpse of Jesus in the crowd, the Savior had already planned to stay at his house. Notice what Luke tells us. When Jesus came to the place. Okay, the NIV version tells us when Jesus came to the spot. Note that Luke doesn't say when Jesus saw Zacchaeus on the tree. Okay? It was not Zacchaeus climbing on the tree that got Jesus' attention. Zacchaeus could have been deep in a hole and the seeking Savior would have found him on that day. It wasn't Zacchaeus who called on to Jesus. It wasn't Zacchaeus who accidentally dropped his sand on Jesus' head. What Luke does tell us is that Jesus stopped exactly where he had planned to stop. And he looked up at the man that he had come to save. This is not the only thing that Luke shows us regarding the intentionality of the Savior. But as we keep reading verse 5, we are told that after Jesus looked up at Zacchaeus, And calls him by name. He says to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down. For I must stay at your house today. Now we need to kind of take our time and and just put this apart a little bit. Hurry and come down. That's an imperative. It calls for immediate action. No delay. Why? Why? Why does it call for immediate action? For today. Listen, guys, God not only knows who he will save, he knows when he will save them, and he knows where he will save them. I must stay at your house today. Well, who said? Who determined that? 
Why Zacchaeus' house of all people? Did Zacchaeus own a bed and breakfast that we didn't know about? No. What this story is showing us is that our Lord had a divinely ordained appointment with this man. I must stay. It is not a request. It is not a suggestion. It is an imperative, a mandate. Jesus was saying, I'm coming. I must come. This is the reason why that morning, Zacchaeus had a burned curiosity in his heart to see Jesus. This is the reason why he ran ahead of the crowd to see Jesus. This is the reason why he climbed on that tree to see Jesus. Not because of his initiative, but because of God the seeking Savior who had drawn him on that day at this time to this place so that Jesus could look up to him and call him by name and tell him, Today is the day that I had planned even before the foundations of the earth. Church, do you realize that the day you met Jesus, he already knew who you were. And he had intentionally planned that day to be the day he stayed at your house. For some of you, that day may be today. And this story shows us what Jesus staying at your house looks like. But before we see that, I wanted us to look at the crowd's reaction to Jesus' command to Zacchaeus. Because as we look at their reaction, we find out that he is an impartial Savior. Look with me at verse 7. It says, And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And the reaction of the crowd is very predictable. I mean, both the religious elite and the common people looked down upon Zacchaeus. And so when they heard this, they all began to grumble. How could this be? No self-respecting Jew would ever expose himself to such severe pollution by staying at the house of the chief administrator of taxes. I mean, this is the most corrupt of all tax collectors. And then to eat a meal with him? Come on. To sleep at his house? This is absolute outrage. As we have seen, according to the crowd, Zacchaeus is under the category of the wretched, the rejected, the category of those people who are unclean and untouchable. But Luke presents to us a seeking Savior who is impartial to the lost sinner. Unlike the crowd and unlike Unlike us, Jesus doesn't judge the way we do. Isn't that good news? Isn't it good news that he doesn't care what the crowd thinks? He is not detoured from his seeking by the crowd's grumbling. We need to understand that there is no lost sinner who is outside of the reach of the seeking Savior. Even those who seem unreachable. Even the family member who mocks you every Christmas. Even the husband who left his family for another woman. Even the teenager addicted to pornography. And yes, even the thug who is angry at the world and wants to hurt people. Jesus is impartial with those he seeks. His mercy can find even the worst of sinners. 
Where sin abounds, His grace abounds even greater. That's the reason we sit here this morning. Because He found us in our worst. Again, I repeat, maybe this is your day where you are found by Him. So let's look at Zacchaeus' response to see what being found looks like. And we go into scene number three. I forgot to tell you scene number two. I'm sorry. The salvation of the lost. And we read, the first thing that we see from Zacchaeus' response is that he hurries down and he receives Jesus joyfully. Look with me at Luke 9, 6. It says, so he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. What a vivid picture of faith in action. Jesus called him and he hurried down and received him joyfully. There was no hesitation. There was only joyful obedience. What a contrast from the crowd. What a contrast to the rich young ruler. You see, we might suppose that such a despicable sinner would be distressed to hear the perfect sinless Son of God say, I'm coming to your house. But he was joyful. His heart was prepared. And at this point in the story, the curtain goes down on the day completely. We don't know exactly what goes on after here. Jesus has gone into Zacchaeus' house in front of the grumbling crowd. Everybody's mad. And between verses 7 and 8, we are never told what exactly happened at Zacchaeus' house. The story doesn't tell us what Zacchaeus served for dinner or how long Jesus stayed. It doesn't tell us, you know, their conversations. But what is evident in what Zacchaeus says next is that not only had he received Jesus joyfully into his home, but he had also received him joyfully into his heart as Lord. Look with me at verse 8. It says, And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord. Look, Lord. He stood up and he said, Look, Lord. This is an affirmation, acknowledging Jesus as his Lord, confessing him as his own master. Church, church, you know what I love about this? I love about this is the fact that there is no four or five point step plan of salvation or any prefabricated prayers that can guarantee the salvation of Zacchaeus' soul here. What Luke is showing us through this story is the divine miracle of conversion of a sinner who has experienced the sovereign grace of God and has received him joyfully by faith in his heart. And what we are witnessing is this joyful reception of Jesus. This reception is is not just polite hospitality. It is an inward change. It is a changed heart that occurred in Zacchaeus and he would never be the same again. What else can explain this, this radical transformation? So let's see what Zacchaeus says in verse 8 after he stood up and says, Lord. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, look, look, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it 
fourfold. My friends, what an incredible transformation. What an example of repentance and faith. Jesus called Zacchaeus both, Jesus called, and Zacchaeus both received him and rejected sin. He is a radically changed man, and we are able to see this as we see him deciding to give half of his possessions to the poor. This is a complete reversal. The taker had become the giver. The one mastered by his passion to get had come out and being swept by the compassion to give. What a contrast to the rich young ruler who was asked to give. The one who had made his mark as an extortioner had become the one desiring to restore the wronged. He vowed to repay those he had defrauded, giving back four times as much. His mind was changed. His heart was changed. And this resulted in a clear intention to change also his behavior. Zacchaeus not only illustrates for us the power of faith in Jesus to bring new life, but he also introduces to us the cost of discipleship. You see, what this change meant to to Zacchaeus was everything. You see, his whole life had been built on money, his goals, his purposes, his very identity as a person were built on the importance of wealth and material success. The core of his personality, the values that had given him direction in life had now shifted. And without hesitation, without making sure his bank account is, is, is up to date, without Jesus even saying a word, he stands up and he gives evidence of genuine faith. Shockingly, all of a sudden, people had become more important to him than dollars. Honesty had become more important to him than gain. Zacchaeus had become a different man, a new man. But... Again, Luke brings us back and shows us the main character in this story. And he reminds us of the real reason why Zacchaeus had been transformed. Because we can easily err again and make this about Zacchaeus. You see, look with me at verse 9. It says, And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. You see, Zacchaeus' transformation is a result of the fact that salvation has come to this house. It is when Jesus, the seeking Savior, finds a sinner and comes into his house that genuine salvation comes to the heart of the sinner. What we have witnessed is Zacchaeus' response is merely the evidences of something major that has occurred in his heart. Salvation has come to his heart, and his name is Jesus. Zacchaeus had become a son of Abraham by faith. Abraham believed God, Paul tells us in Romans 4. And his faith was credited to him as righteousness. So to Zacchaeus, the seeking Savior has found Zacchaeus. He has come to his house and he has brought salvation. My friends, those who turn in faith to Jesus are saved, not because of their heritage, but in spite of their heritage. They are saved not because of their good deeds, but in spite of their evil deeds. They are saved not because they sought Jesus out, but because Jesus is seeking them. 
And this is exactly what this story is about. It is about the seeking Savior. Everything that we have just witnessed in the life of Zacchaeus has happened for one reason and one reason only. And that reason is in verse 10. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This is the main point of this message. Because this is the main point of this story. In fact, it is the main point of the whole book of Luke. And if we haven't noticed by now, it is the real story behind the whole Bible. This is not just the story of Zacchaeus. It is the story of God who came as a baby, taking the form of human flesh so that he could live a life that we rejected to live in order that he could then die nailed to a cross and pay the penalty that we deserved for our rebellion. The truth is that as Jesus speaks these words, he's not just illustrating the answer to the question that we've been carrying along this whole time. He also is illustrating the answer he gave his disciples back in chapter 18. When he responded to them, he said to them, what is impossible with man is possible with God. It is possible for sinners to be saved because the Son of Man came to seek them and to save them. We have just witnessed a camel go through the eye of a needle. Church, may this give us hope. May this change the way we view the lost. You see, this text is fundamentally about who Jesus is. But there is an obvious application for us as his disciples. We have just seen the nature of our Savior. We have seen the nature of his mission. He is a Savior who seeks and saves. This is the nature of his mission. But what does that mean for us? And I think this is what it means. And it's in your notes. This is the whole claim on this text on us. Like the Savior, we must urgently seek the salvation of the lost. Like the Savior, we must urgently seek the salvation of the lost. Church, are we, are we to be like the crowd who hates the lost sinner and wants nothing to do with them? Are we to be like the disciples living in unbelief, always asking, then who can be saved? Or are we to be like our seeking Savior who is urgently seeking the lost? Who are we going to choose to be like? Let us pray. Father, 
We rejoice this morning. As we are reminded, Lord, that you are a seeking Savior. As we are reminded that by your own initiative, you sent your Son to seek us out. The day that I was at the beach, the day that people here were at work or at home, and someone came and spoke the gospel to us, and someone invited us to come to church, that was your plan, Lord. That was your initiative. You were seeking us. And Father, I thank you so much, because we would have never seeked you. We despised you. But you loved us. And so, Father, we just pray that these truths would burn in our hearts as we look at the lost around us. We have family members that are lost. We have friends that are lost. We have people we don't know. We see every day that are lost. Are we to ignore them? Father, no. Do not allow us to do so. Father, help us. Help us be personable with them as you are. Help us, Lord, be impartial as you are. Help us, Lord, be intentional as you are. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.